January 1st, 2024. Well, welcome. I'm Kevin Rogers, and you're listening to the beginning of Season 5 of Sidewalk Skyline Podcast. You know, in the four years that we've been releasing episodes every two weeks, that's 96 episodes to date, and uh, that's uh, probably well over 100 hours of content on urban ministry taking place in Canada. Well, I'm glad to still be at it, and uh, on the tail end of uh, 2023, the last episode, I mentioned that we were going to have a guest, Braden Brodeur. Uh, Unfortunately, our scheduling didn't work out the way we planned uh, through the Christmas season, so uh, we're still going to be releasing that episode, hopefully, uh, if the Lord wills, uh, the next episode will be with Braden Brodeur, uh, who's working with young people at West Edmonton Mall. Well, on today's episode, I'm playing a session from Brad Sider, uh, who spoke on homelessness in Toronto. Brad is a director at the Maxwell Megan Center, uh, the can- one of uh, Toronto's, uh, probably the largest shelter in Toronto that I'm aware of. And uh, he has some great insights. Uh, This was in a session at Our City Toronto, or in this case, Our City Scarborough, uh, that took place uh, back in the fall. So let's let's go right now and listen to Brad Sider. As I mentioned, my name is Brad Sider. Uh, I live in Scarborough. Uh, I live at Kennedy and Ellesmere, and so live close by. Um, somewhat inspired, I probably this wasn't part of plan talk, but somewhat inspired by the, the conversation that started with the plenary session, you know, the, the bigger church. And um, uh, just, again, a little bit about who I am and how I come to this. My ancestors, my forefathers and foremothers, uh, came from Switzerland, like the Switzerland-German border. They were Mennonites, so uh, they're, they're a bit... Um, some people, Mennonites, they think of horse and buggy, and there's a spectrum. <laughs> Not all Mennonites, but, but the Amish, they're certainly a part of the community, and uh, my ancestors were um, theological misfits. Um, they, they, have a high, they believe in pacifism. Um, they, it was a holiness movement, so they had high distrust of like the world, the government, all that sort of stuff. And in, before the borders formed way back when, uh, but that Swiss-German part, they, uh, they, would have, they would have been oppressed. They, would have, uh, they were thrown in jail. Um, they believed in adult baptism, which caught a lot of flack by the authorities at the time. Uh, they were slightly passive-aggressive in their resistance. They, 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 they took on a... <laughs> they, over time, they eventually said, not only will we baptize adults, but Jesus was in the grave three days. So we were, if you go through baptism, you are going to be dunked three times, <laughs> which to me is a bit passive aggressive. It's kind of like we're going we're gonna to do what we want to do. In any case, uh, they leave. They go to the United States. A number of Mennonites uh, land in Pennsylvania. And over time, they, they come up to Canada. My, my ancestors are both oppressed and settlers at the same time. It's a bit of a contradiction that you have to work through, I guess. And uh, they're farmers. And so my, again, my 
my heritage is, is grew up in a farming community and eventually made my way to Chicago where I went to school. And that's, that's where a lot of things changed for me and started to engage with the city, the issues of the city, became more comfortable in it. And then over time, moved back to Toronto, got married, and as was mentioned, have, has, I've worked in drop-in settings. That's where I met EJ, worked with Young Street Mission. That was 2004. And then uh, went to Mennonite Central Committee and worked with, uh, with guys coming out of jail. Uh, loved that job. Funding issues, but, but really, really appreciated that job. And then, uh, then worked my way over to the Salvation Army. Not a Salvationist, um, not as particularly articulate in their theology, but I do work for them and uh, work at a homeless shelter currently in Toronto. It, before the pandemic, it would be the second biggest shelter in Toronto. It's at Queen and Sherbourne. So for those of you who are familiar with the city, it's a, it's a rough area. And um, uh, the Sherbourne Strip is, is uh, daunting at times for some people, I guess. The shelter is uh, currently at 264 people. When the pandemic hit, so you can see right through there, if you look at that, see there's a Holiday Inn Express. You can actually see it from this window. Uh, the green with the green peak, that's a Holiday Inn Express that is currently a men's shelter. They used to be residing at Maxwell Megan. There's 131 guys there. So we, so before the pandemic, Maxwell Meehan was at almost 400 residents. Uh, the pandemic split that up and we're, into, we're at two different locations. The one downtown, the one right over there. <laughs> You're very close to it. So um, the Maxwell Meehan, just for a bit of background, who's, Maxwell Meehan was a, the son of a prime minister and he was a financier, he was a banker, because he had a lot of money, donated to the Salvation Army. That's how he got his name on the Maxwell Meehan Center. So, so again, currently working with, with uh, homeless folks uh, downtown Toronto. That's kind of a brief, brief overview of who I am. So the way that I'm going to set up the conversation uh, is I'm going to talk a bit about the problem. So I've kind of framed it, what's, what's, what are some of the issues? Um, I'm going to talk on the why. Uh, I think you'll find I don't know, <laughs> that, uh, but that, that, that you'll hear a lot about how the complexity of homelessness, and there is a truth to that. Um, but talk a little bit about the why, and then, and then hopefully have a conversation about the Christian, Christian and or faith-based response to, to homelessness. And so those, those are kind of the three, the three ways going to go through it. I'm going to start... Since this is a, we are at um, Global Kingdom Ministry, I am going to start with, um, that I will, that I'll come back to, I'm going to start with a passage of scripture. Uh, this is, um, it's a story that's told in three of the Gospels, and um, I have uh, found it helpful I've drawn inspiration from this story and the way that Jesus interacts with the individual involved. And uh, over time, as I've come to under, uh, the way I've understood the story, I, um, you know, I've really appreciated Jesus' response to it. We'll talk about that in a bit. But I'm going to just start with, uh, it's, the, it's the story of the, 
the man who's in the tomb, he's in the graveyard, and they demon possessed. Uh, what I hear, what I feel, no reason to think that it's not possession, or I have no idea, but, but when I read the story, I, I hear the symptoms of extreme mental health and addiction. It, it, I, can picture the, I can picture some of the scenario. I don't know about the graveyard part, but um, anyways. Uh, this is, um, then they sailed to the region of Gerasenes across, across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothing or lived in a house, but he stayed in the tombs. When the man saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, shouting in a loud voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you not to torture me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was bound with chains and shackles, he had broken the chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. What is your name? Jesus asked. Legion, he replied. Because many demons had gone into him, and the demons kept begging Jesus not to order them to go into the abyss. There on the hillside, a large herd of pigs was feeding, so the demons begged Jesus, so the demons begged Jesus to let them enter the pigs, and he gave them permission. <laughs> then the demons came out of the man and went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the, into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw that what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. So the people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found a man whom the, whom the de demons had left, sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Meanwhile, those who had seen it reported it, how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Um, I have no idea. I'm, I'm not going to talk about that just yet. But when we talk about it, I have no idea about the pigs or why demons wanted to go into them or anything like that. That's beyond my scope of knowledge. But, um, but that's just a piece of scripture I wanted to start with and then but bring it to our present realities and kind of the things that we face in Toronto. And uh, as I was looking at stuff, quite literally, certainly in the Western world and uh, probably across the world. Um, so last night, no, sorry, Thursday night, um, 9,250 people used the shelter system in Toronto. Uh, that number, I got that number, I believe I got that number off the City of Toronto website. So uh, in, my, in my mind, if that's what the city is saying, it's probably higher. <laughs> so that's people who use shelter system. That's not people in encampments. That doesn't include the ravine that we were talking about, all that sort of stuff. They, they, the number of homeless in Toronto ex clearly exceeds 10,000 people. And I would, um, it, it probably wouldn't be right for me to actually guess as to how many people. It's hard to count the folks in ravines, the people who are on the TTC. Uh, just um, sheltering outside, that sort of stuff. The numbers, the numbers, pretty high, and not pretty. It's 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 very high. That's that's what makes it so visible to us. So that's Thursday night. That's that's what happened here. 
Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna read some paragraphs uh, from some story not from news articles I found. This is uh, I, I kind of want people I kind of want us to understand if homelessness is like a very big problem. <laughs> it's affecting a lot of people in a lot of communities. Uh, um, this so in in London, Ontario. Uh, in the last four years, over 200 people have died on the streets of London, Ontario. I'm not sure much people travel around, but uh, you know, it's a, what, mid-sized city in Ontario? A city in the midst of its own housing crisis. Rates of homelessness in London have more than doubled since the outset of the pandemic. Parts of the core now evoke the abject suffering seen in Vancouver's downtown east side and LA's Skid Row. Uh, this is what they're some of what their city council is trying to do. This is from Toronto Life magazine, by the way. When it, becomes, when it became clear to, to London City Council that the usual remedies, shelters, street patrols, weren't going to make a dent in the problem, they opted instead for rat, what they're calling a radical new approach. This December, the city will open its first two homeless hubs, mid-sized residential complexes where unhoused people can seek respite. Um, and the article goes on. That's... London, Ontario. The same things are, uh, got folks from Windsor. Uh, I'm aware of situations in a place like Coburg, uh, a, a bit of a smaller town on the other side of Oshawa. Uh, that these, that the, especially after the pandemic, um, something happened. That stuff became more visible to us. It went boom. And I think, I think if you're here, you probably recognize, recognize that Ottawa, it's across Ontario. It's not just across Ontario. I am uh, thankful I'm going on a vacation uh, this week. I'm uh, going to take my son. I'm married, four kids, my son and I, uh, 14 years old. Uh, we're going to go to Los Angeles. So Los Angeles this week. Um, uh, he's a basketball fan. Gonna go see the Lakers. The <laughs> um, the the fire. So this is a story. The fire erupted after midnight under a Los Angeles freeway. Sixteen people were where sixteen people were living, including a pregnant woman who was only weeks from giving birth. As the flames engulfed the storage yard and the inferno's heat melted some of the thoroughfare's street guardrails, concrete pillars. Uh, rescue crews were able to get everyone out safely. But the disaster has brought renewed criticism of the officials' inability to get homeless residents off the street, leaving tens of thousands living in perilous locations across the nation's second largest city. Um, Los Angeles has, prior to the pandemic, the estimate was 30,000, 28,000. 28,903 in 2020 people had experienced homelessness of some kind. Um, in 2023, Los Angeles County, so there's a difference between city and county, but county had experienced 75,518. So I was like, oh, I'm going to have to prep my son for this. <laughs> you know, we'll have a little conversation. Um, but uh, that's... That's what's going on in Los Angeles. If you read the news, San Francisco, uh, multiple cities across the United States are experiencing the same kind of problems. Paris. Oops. 
2024, the Olympics are going to be in Paris. Um, in 2022, there were approximately 50,000 homeless people housed in hotels nightly in Le, I'm not a French speaker, in Lille de France region, where Paris is located, according to the Federation of Solidarity Actors. Um, this year, at least 5,000 of the previously available hotel spots have been canceled. The article goes on to talk about how they're actually taking buses and they're moving, the, move, moving people out of Paris to smaller towns in the region because they have to get ready for the Olympics. <laughs> you know, that's not something you want to show people, of course. So they're going to they're gonna move people out to regions, um, uh, to other places other than, than, um, than Paris proper. The point here is, is, is that the problem, uh, I, I started to look, I'm like, what, you know, what about uh, other places like uh, China or Africa? That, that information was a little harder to come by. I'm not really sure. But it became very apparent to me that this problem certainly exists within the Western world, right? Um, and, and it gets us into the why. Why is this happening? Um, Uh, I'll start with, with this story. Be, before the pandemic, I like to go to the movies. So there's a movie theater down call, downtown called The Varsity. It sometimes shows movies that are harder to see in other, other spots. Tw December 2019, I remember very, very well, because everything would shut down shortly after. It was kind of, I think it was the last movie I saw before the pandemic hit. I went down to the, went down to the Varsity, for those of you who watch movies, it was a war movie, 1917 is the name of the movie. Went to see it. I, was, I, went by my, I went on my own. The movie got out late. I usually go to the varsity. I take the subway down. Um, and there's, you usually get to the varsity. You get off at bay, and you go up through Holt Renfrew, usually. And, uh, and then that takes you to the theater. So Holt Renfrew, it's... For those of you, it's like all of a sudden you see gold everywhere, and it's you know it's it's obviously it's obviously a spot for for rich shop for wealthy shoppers, at least in my opinion. Well, the movie ends, and I couldn't get through my normal way. Like I couldn't, uh, I couldn't get back to the subway the normal way that I usually go. Uh, I guess at midnight they shut off those doors, so I had to go around. I had to figure it out, but I went through what Cumberland Terrace. So it's another it's another retail complex. That, un that is connected underground. They're right side by side. But it's so strange, the difference. And then I come through, and they have a food court. It's all closed. But what I, I'm like, there's a, there's a fair number of people in this food court. And then I started to recognize what it was. It was like folks experiencing homelessness. It was midnight. They didn't have anywhere to go. They had the bags. So those of you who work with homeless folks, you, kinda, you can kind of picture that, right? Like, their, their, their two bags of belongings were with them. And so anyways, I walked my way through back to onto the subway. The reason I bring this story up is, is because right side by side, you have a place where the poor, the homeless, are not allowed to go. You close it off. Security guards, all that sort of stuff. This is not something you can access. But again, it's hard to describe, but it, it's, you can tell that Cumberland Terrace is more run down. It's just a, it's just a different, and there's not as many shops that are open. You, know, you see the for lease signs. That's not happening on the Holt Renfrew side of things. 
So the point is, is there's something happening in our society where we value we, we, we value and protect wealth at the expense of the poor. And from a faith-based perspective and from a human perspective, I think it's important for us to say that that's, that's not okay. Um, however we say that, whether we, we you know, resist with our, uh, you know, our church programs or we resist to the government and we speak to them. Um, now... So there is something, again, there is something fundamentally wrong with the way we're going about things. And it's hard, uh, and it has to do with the way we value people. Now, but the why, why, well, what is, what's going on? I, I have come, since I've been at Maxwell, Maxwell Meehan, um, the title of homelessness or people experiencing homelessness, people are more than that title. So the things that have led them to the shelter, I, I, I use the word homeless because that's something that we all understand, but they come to the shelter for a variety of reasons. Uh, and to me, the shelter now is a catch basin for all the stuff that's got, like all the other stuff that's kind of been underfunded or has broken down all the other systems that have, been, have broken down. So long-term care. We have folks in the shelter who, if we could get them into a long-term care facility, who maybe, yeah, maybe they have some addictions-related issues, but could, could kind of figure that out for people, help them along with that sort of stuff, whether it's with addictions programs or all that sort of stuff. But uh, a homeless person is also, may also be somebody who's over 65. Right, so uh, they may have had, they may be somebody who has lost their job. It's come up about the refugee crisis. The re so we've already got a fragile system, and the refu and refugees from um, uh, it's probably as you were if you know you watch the news, Uganda, Kenya, that a lot of folks coming from that area, um, they they have overwhelmed. If you come into our shelter. There's a lot of folks there from there. They're, they're waiting. And um, it's, a, it's a completely different demographic, though. So to think of the a homeless folk as mental health, addictions, it doesn't actually really apply to the guy from Uganda. Um, and uh, again, I don't know everybody's theological perspective, but some of them they're LGBT, and they're coming. They've come into my office, and I've heard a couple of stories, and they're running from a government that is persecuting them. And uh, I, I would hope whatever our stance on that particular issue, I hope we would be able to say that's not okay. <laughs> you know? And that's putting pressure. They're not all, by the way. So if you, see, if you meet someone from Uganda, you can't make an assumption about their sexual orientation, please don't do that. But the point is, is um, the, the system has now become overwhelmed with, with refugees to the point where I'm like, where, were all, where did all the other folks go? <laughs> I'm not sure where they all went. Um, so it goes to the point that when you talk about a homeless, homeless someone who's experiencing homelessness, uh, there's a vast variety of things. 
criminal justice system. Do people come out of jail and come into a, sh yes, they do. But there may have been a breakdown in the criminal justice system. Like there wasn't the supports there they needed to be properly integrated and rehabilitated and all that sort of stuff. Family breakdown, all these sorts of stuff. CAS, the number of people who have been in the system their whole lives. Education, da da da, goes on and on and on. It's a, that's why, that's why there's a complexity to this issue. I, I just put it out there that, so I don't know what everybody here will do or go away with, but um, if you go to work in long-term care and try to make some, and be a positive Christian faith presence in that, in that sector, you may actually be inadvertently helping out the homeless situation, like pushing for reform and things that need to happen there, being a voice of the gentrification. Uh, it's, some of the folks in our shelter have kind of just been displaced because land developers wanted the land, stuff like that. So it's a breakdown across, and that's why people kind of like, what do we do? I don't know. Do we just build more housing? All that sort of stuff. Those, those, are, those are questions. So, so the why, the why is complex. There's multiple people groups. Um, you've got youth. You've got women fleeing. That's another women fleeing abuse. I would suggest that if, you ta if we were able to tackle um, maybe domestic violence and long-term care, you would put a dent in people accessing the homeless shelter, that you put a dent in it. So, uh, you know, have proper, proper stuff, proper systems in place to properly support people in those situations. Um, that's kind of the, so the why, the why is complicated. It has something to do with our values, what we value. It has to do with broken, broken systems. And uh, it, leads to, it leads to places like Queen and Sherborne and any other places you all find yourselves, um, and to ravines. Uh, before Maxwell Meehan, so Maxwell Meehan is a big shelter. It's a big building. It's daunting. It's old. Uh, before that, I worked at Gateway Men's Shelter, which also Salvation Army. For those of you, uh, Dion Oxford is the one who started Gateway, uh, for those of you who may or may not know that name. Um, worked there. It's, a sm it's smaller. It's like uh, before the pandemic, it was 120. And um, oh, sorry, I missed something. I, I did, I did want to go back to the why. I apologize. Go back to the why. I did want to talk about the pandemic, about what happened there. Because it kind of fits under the why. Um, shelter workers, so when the pandemic hit, and again, there's, there's things that are kind of etched in your memory. And um, that March, April, everything shut down. I'm not sure what every other folks were doing, but you know that there were some people who were going into work. Shelter workers were among them. They were still going to work. We're going downtown, and uh, it was wild. Like, and there were things you see that you know other people aren't witnessing. And, uh, uh, and I don't want to make it sound like there were hordes of people on the street, because that's not true. But there were things that shut down. Uh, libraries weren't open. Drop-ins closed. Like, drop-ins went to food only. But 
so places that people uh, could go during the day stopped. And you would go, you go to, again, you go, and then there, there were people, and they, they were openly using on the streets because the harm reduction places had closed. So all the, all the places that they could normally go, so you're, you're kind of witnessing stuff on the street that you've never seen before. It didn't last that long. The, the other thing that happened in the pandemic that I think people forget about, and these, this is about our values, right? This goes back to our values. What happened in order to keep the economy going? The government started giving out wild amounts of money. And if you think homeless folks didn't get some of that money, <laughs> they did. They, they, they knew exactly how to get it, and they got it. And what did they spend? In some cases, not all, but how did, what, how did they spend the money on, their, on drugs? But what happened to the drug supply? Borders were closed. So now you've got people making stuff up <laughs> because they know that there's still people who want to buy something. And there's actually, there's actually from, a, from a poverty or homeless perspective, there's actually an increase of money in the system. And now you're spent, and so it's not all. I don't want to paint the brush of everybody the same way. But some of them are now buying substances that are actually not as well made as they used to be. <laughs> Stuff's not coming from Mexico or wherever it may come from. And people are making it, making it up so that they can continue making their money. Duh. Maybe I should watch the time. Uh, I'll watch, yeah. The, um, so. But the pandemic, the pandemic hits, places that homeless folks usually could go close down, and they've never really kind of come back. Like some, in some cases, they've they've never they've never come back quite the same way. So there's a um, great All Saints and Anglican Church at Sherburne and Dundas, amazing work. But before the pan, and and I think that they've gone back to it, but be, they're a drop in. Before the pandemic. They would put out mattresses on the floor so people who had been awake all night, all that sort of stuff. So during the day, that's where folks could go to sleep. Well, they went to, they went to food only. That wasn't open. So now the folks who accessed all of that uh, didn't, for, for a period of time, not in, like for a little while, were not able to access that anymore. You might, then there's other folks. They'd go to libraries. Uh, they'd just kind of hang tight. You could watch a movie, something like that, get a book out, all that sort of stuff. Malls, the security was all over the, you know, they're getting people out of the food courts, all that sort of stuff. So all that stuff breaks down, which pushes people out into the street. The shelters are, are considered to be unsafe because it could be, you could have massive spreading events in shelters, makes sense. That's not crazy to think. And so you have all these things come together and you have an increase in encampments. Five minutes? I got to hurry. Um, <laughs> so, so I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go real quick to um, Christian response. When I went to Maxwell, I was really struck by suffering. I I never I never really kind of framed it that way before. But there's a lot of people there, and it really that really started started to to bother me. Uh, I started with so so there's. I think that there's two, two faith-based responses. Sorry, my thing keeps going out. I started with this story, so I won't read it again for the sake of time. Jesus comes in, the, the person who's suffering from demon possession. A lot of times that's interpreted as 
Jesus having a conversation with the demon. I'd encourage you to go back and reread it. He says to the person, the man in front of him, what is your name? What is your name? He, the way I read that story now is, is the, the demons are an inconvenience. <laughs> they are actually almost annoying, like a mosquito that he's got to swat away. He wants to know the name of the person in front of him and the demons, the mental health, the addictions are getting in the way of the person in front of him. That's how I read that story now. And so I would encourage us in our Christian response. So I remember when I first started this work, uh, and that's a thing that can happen, and, and it's understandable. I didn't come from a world of like significant mental health or addictions. And for those of us who haven't, it can be a little bit scary, a little bit daunting. Um, and, and the truth, if I'm honest, if I'm honest with you, sometimes the folks scared me because I didn't know what to do with it. I read that story, and I see a Jesus who is not scared. It doesn't matter to him. He brushes it away. The person in front of me is the person I need to get to know. And the Christian response is, is not, <gasps> like it takes some time for some of us. It took time for me to not be startled or scared or anything like that, but simply be committed to the idea of getting to know the person in front of us. That's a good Christian response. Second one, going quickly, is um, that this goes back to the idea of suffering. So, so a lot of times, the first part of my work, the first part of my journey was kind of understanding that. I would consider that to be an empathetic, compassionate approach. That's a Christian response. But there's something that happened, and it's only happened over the last four years. I'm not sure I would have even made some of the comments I made today. That I'm... I see things, and it's starting to make me angry. <laughs> and there's stuff in Scripture, that's okay. I don't know what to do with it yet. Um, uh, two quick Scriptures. Isaiah, hopefully it pops up. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the cause of the widow. Uh, that very famous Ezekiel, hopefully this comes up easily. Um, what was the problem with Sodom and Gomorrah? Now, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. This is in Ezekiel. Ezekiel um, 14, I think it is. You can check it. Now, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and complacent. They did not help the poor and needy. That's the sin of Sodom. And... When you start to see that stuff and you start to see injustice, you start to see these systems breaking down, that's something new for me, and I'm not quite sure. I don't have answers for you about what I'm going to do with all that. But there is, and that there is an anger starts to rub you. And uh, I would encourage people if that's kind of a response, make sure you're balanced. <laughs> but that is a faith response. That's God in you saying the systems are not okay. Something needs to be done. They are moving people around. They just moved people out of region, and now they're going to try to move people out of Moss Park. They're families, and they have, system, they have their own family systems, and they have people they care about, and you're just moving them, and it's not okay, and it causes a lot of other problems. Finally, I said I'd talk about the food bank. Um, down the road, uh, my wife volunteers 
at a place called Grace Place. My wife is Starbucks manager. Starbucks values uh, volunteering in the community. She found a church, Grace Place, it's called Pastor Amos, and his congregation started a food bank. Uh, I think during the pandemic. Um, I met, had breakfast with Pastor Amos. Uh, the, uh, as people started to come into his church for food, uh, it started to gain a little bit of notice. Daily Bread Food Bank comes to him and says, oh, we'd like to help. This, this is a story he tells me. But we want you to do it this way. He said, no. <laughs> right? We're not going to do it that way. We're, because they, they, they wanted area codes, and you do this and this. He said, no, we're not going to. If they come and ask for food, if I can give it to them, I will give it to them. I'm not going to put a lot of. And that food bank, I'm not sure how big yours are, but this is how, Pastor, that food bank is now apparently the biggest one in Ontario. If you go to that church, you, their gym is entirely like food. It's like a, it's like a mini Costco in there. And they, <laughs> they come in. Guess what happened? Daily Bread Food Bank, they came back to him. So, so remember, that, remember, remember how that's enticing. Daily Bread Food Bank can come along and say, hey, we can give you some money if we do it. No, 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 we're just going to feed people. Daily Bread Food Bank comes back to Pastor Amos. So now they see all of these people coming. And now he's on their board. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so the thing is, is the government, there's going to be like high-profile nonprofit agencies. They're going to come along, and they're, they see you being a little bit successful. And they may, they, may, they may actually want to participate in that. And they will entice you with money. But that's the thing that got us in the problem in the first place. I would encourage you, I, and I work, for an, I work for an organization that's very invested in government funding. I acknowledge that. But I encourage you um, to be careful with that. Set good policies and procedures around that. A Christian response, a faith-based response, is not a response that concerns itself primarily. We always have to be concerned with money, but primarily with money. We are concerning ourselves with people. Because Jesus, Jesus wants to know the name of the person that's in front of him. And that I would encourage us to consider as the response to homelessness, to single moms, to refugees, to whatever, because they will all show up with behaviors that set it, like that surprise us. But um, I'd encourage us to remember that Jesus' response of uh, trying to find the name of the person in front of us. Remembering the name of the person in front of us. Yeah, that's, uh, that's certainly a challenge, isn't it? Because uh, when you see somebody on the street who's homeless, um, we do have a little bit of that Good Samaritan response in us that wants to go and help. Uh, but we also have the priest, the Levite, and the Jew that want to cross the street to the other side. Um, when we encounter people, um, sometimes to be friendly, to... Uh, ask for a name, to give our name. Uh, we, we have so many conditions and, and apprehensions about interacting uh, with people that uh, we don't know the, the state of mind that they're in. Uh, we don't know what they're going to ask us for. We don't know if we have time to stop. And, and uh, so we all go through these kind of uh, mental games. Uh, but um, you know, as, as important as it is to uh, 
learn to be friendly in every situation, it's also important to be thinking about uh, the bigger issues, the systemic uh, problems, and, and the, uh, the, the actual needs of the person. You know, it's interesting, too, we often think that we know what somebody else needs in their life, and uh, it may not be the thing that, that's dominating their consciousness. Uh, and I, I notice when Jesus healed people, uh, often he would uh, ask them what seemed like an obvious question. He would say, um, you know, what, uh, why, why did you, why did you uh, stop me? Why did you talk to me? Um, you know, what is it that I can do for you? And uh, not assuming that uh, because we can look at a person uh, that we know exactly what they need. We don't always, but um, the important thing is to develop ways to interface with the homeless. And uh, there's lots of safe ways. There's lots of constructive ways to do that in our communities. Well, uh, as uh, promised, uh, next episode, Braden Brodeur and I are going to have a conversation about his work with young people in the West Edmonton Mall. So come back, will you? Until that time, I'm your host, Kevin Rogers, and you've been listening to Sidewalk Skyline Podcast. <laughs>